Our scripture today is taken from Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 to 23. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. God, we thank you that uh, you love us enough to walk with us. That's pretty hard for us to, uh, to understand, because even the most loving among us, we have our limits, Lord, as to who we want to walk with and to live with. So teach us more about that this morning. Amen. So the psalmist in Psalm 27 says... Uh, Hear my voice when I call, Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. So why would the psalmist want to see the face of someone who has said, if you see my face, you're going to die? That's what Moses, uh, or God says to Moses. He says, uh, you cannot see my face, for no one who may see me may live. I don't think God is saying, well, if you see me, I'm going to have to kill you. I think what God is saying is, it's sort of like looking at the sun. If you look at the sun long enough, you're going to go blind. And if we look at the one who created that sun and all suns and every star, every star and all the galaxies, each of which have hundreds of billions of stars, and there are hundreds of billions of galaxies, if you look at that God in the face, well, you don't have a chance. I think it's also clear that when the Bible talks about the face of God, it's not just talking about his literal face. It's using it as a metaphor. And so, in fact, in the previous chapter, um, we're, or actually earlier in this chapter, uh, we're told that God spoke with Moses' face. 
to faith. So obviously he didn't mean his literal face. So what does it mean? What does it mean to see and to seek the face of God? As we look throughout Scripture, it means to seek the presence of God. It's to seek to know God. Paul says, I want to know Christ. It's It's wanting to be known by God and to know that He really wants to know you. It's to want to know what God is really like. And uh, like I said earlier, it was on the way to chapter 34 where we begin to learn about the character of God, at least in a way that he himself presents to us. He gives us two verses where he lays out all these characteristics on the way to that, that I had to pass through um, this chapter, uh, Exodus 33, where we learn about the presence of God. And I think it's really important to think about the presence of God before we talk about the character of God. I mean, character matters, right? I mean, you know, to to at least some extent, we're going to be voting this week on the basis of a person's character. And that can be any number of politicians. And and your character matters. You know, it matters to me. For our relationship with one another, if I can't trust you, that's going to affect our relationship. And the kind and character of people that we are, wherever we live, work, play, and learn, that really matters for what who and, and what we represent as we, as we live in those places. We want to be people of influence. But you know whose character matters most to me? It's my wife. Other than God, it's her character that matters most to me because I live with her. I'm affected by her character every day. And she's affected by my character. So if this is a God who is with us, then his character really matters because if I have questions about his character, that's not going to be a very positive prospect that God is, in fact, we're going to be afraid of God. Like the psalmist who says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? You know, Where can I flee? And there may be times when we feel like fleeing from God because we're cautious and hesitant about about his presence. Hey guys, good to see you again. Hi, Ashley. And so, let's talk about God's presence. What do we know about God's presence? And my remote isn't working this morning, so I have to have some help from the back. I keep going. So God's presence is awesome. Um, Entering into this area around Mount Sinai, the people saw the thunder and lightning, the sound of trumpets and smoke. Pretty awesome sight. And if we go back to the very beginning of the Bible where there was all this chaos, we were told that God said, let there be light, and there was light. We're told that uh, next God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water so, so there can be atmosphere and space, and it happened. And then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. It's pretty important, and it happened. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation and seed-bearing plants and trees, and it happened. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and it happened. 
pretty awesome. And then there was the awesome thing that happened when God became human. We're going to be celebrating, celebrating that soon um, during Christmas and Advent. When God reduced himself to a human being and lived among us. And the most awesomest thing that probably has ever happened is when that Son of God, God the Son, allowed himself to be nailed to a Roman cross on our behalf. It's so awesome. And that same God gives us his spirit. One year I asked the consistory to read through the book of Acts. Pretty long book. Um, in preparation for our consistory retreat, and I think we all had the sense of, wow, what an awesome God, what an awesome story, what God did through His Spirit in the early church. And that same Spirit is available to us. As Paul writes, now to Him who is able to do immeasurably beyond all that we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us. So God is an awesome God. His presence is awesome. His presence is, uh, is also powerful. And of course, some of the things that we just talked about relate to the fact that uh, God is powerful. Um, he performed those plagues that enabled the people of Israel to be set free from this superpower, from this what may have been the most powerful person of the world, Pharaoh. It was God's power that created the hundreds of billions of galaxies with the hundreds of billions and stars. It's his power that holds all that together so that we're exactly the right distance from the sun and are able to live and to flourish. Rome, Caesar, and the Roman Empire prided itself on its power. It flaunted its power. Its power and the signs of its power were everywhere. It could conquer nations. It could take an individual person that chose to protest in any way against that power. And it could torture that person, shame them, nail them to a cross, the most agonizing, slow form of execution. It had the power to do that. But it didn't have the power to raise the dead. It didn't have the power to defeat death. And ultimately, when Jesus comes back, to destroy death and throw it into the lake of fire. It didn't have the power to heal the blind, the lame, the leper, the deaf, and the paralyzed. God's presence is powerful. Sometimes people just had to be around Jesus, just touch his garment, and they were healed. The thing is about God's power is that God, God doesn't impose it. Um, he's not overpowering. And that's because He wants us to be free. And He wants us to be free so that we can choose to be in relationship to Him not only, but also so that we can develop as leaders. Develop as people who are being trained to reign. We can have the freedom to make choices, to make decisions, and to learn from those choices. It's all a part of learning and learning to reign. And so, uh, 
Yeah, he doesn't overpower us. We may wish that he did. I know there are oftentimes when I wish he would overpower me or overpower other people. He has all power, but he doesn't use it to control us. So God is, is all-powerful. God's presence is all-powerful. God's presence is also painful. The consequence of God allowing us to make our own decisions means that many of our decisions aren't wise. And they end up bringing hurt and pain to ourselves and one another. And instead of looking away and saying, you know, I just can't look at that, or walking away, or fleeing, God walks into the pain, walks into the suffering. And that's why the cross isn't just a one and done in God's part. The cross is a demonstration of God's walking into our pain and shame and suffering. And that's why if we want to live in God's presence, we have to be willing to walk into the pain rather than away from it. And so Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you'll have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me because I'm walking into the pain. And so that's why Jesus can say, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Those who are hungry and homeless and in prison, those who are naked and thirsty, that's where I am. And so if you want to live in my presence, if you want to follow me in the way that Beth talked about earlier, you're going to have to walk into the pain rather than away from the pain. Because that's where I am. And we know that. We know that because of the cross. And we know that because of the story that's unfolding in Exodus. Because God will walk with people. And you know, it's it's, it's just such a hard story to read so often. But God... God lives with his people and all of their stupidity and all of their suffering self-inflicted. Yes, God is a God who walks into the pain. And so, yes, the presence of God is painful. The thing is, we need to go there in part because uh, it's in that pain and suffering that we develop two things. One of which we've already talked about in relationship to God, and that's character. It's also how we become competent. Um, we make decisions and we learn from those decisions. You know, Joey Galusha um, is uh, right now being trained to be a state trooper in Vermont. And he's had to go to, you know, through basic training. He's had these physical challenges he's had to go through. Now it's a little more cerebral, I think. He's, he's learning you know, mentally how to cope with any number of situations that that a person in law enforcement encounters. And in the process, hopefully Joey is becoming more of a person of character and also develop competency. And that that won't stop once he becomes a state trooper. That over the course of his journey, he'll become more competent and more a person of more and more character. That's what we want in our law enforcement people, isn't it? Just as you want the same things in your pastor. When I graduated from seminary, hopefully that wasn't the end of my character development and the, and the end of my developing competency as a pastor. And so we need life's challenges. We need to walk with Christ into that suffering so that we can develop competency and develop character. And so yeah, walking with Christ in his presence can be painful. God's presence is also personal. 
Notice I didn't start there. God didn't walk up to Moses one day when he was out in the desert and say, Moses, I want to have a relationship with you. What do you think? He said, Moses, you don't even hardly know who I am, but I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. I want you to partner with me in leading my people. Uh, Talk about a deer in headlights. Five times Moses gave excuses. I I can't do that. You've got the wrong guy. Oh no, we'll, we'll do it together. When God created us in his image, it was so that we could partner with him in ruling over this world and being creative and you know, cultivating it and culturating it and developing it and caring for it. And we partner with him. I love to see how the relationship between Moses and God develops. We, we saw this a little bit last week. Moses goes from this, this sort of fear and caution and being afraid to speak his mind to now really speaking his mind. I mean, last week we saw that when God said, okay, you know, this isn't going to work. I'm just going to destroy the people. Leave me alone, Moses. And Moses said, no, you can't do that. And he gave reasons. He tried to persuade God. Now, I believe that God wanted to be persuaded. He was, he was teaching, he was equipping and training Moses to reign, to be a good partner. And now in our reading for today, um, earlier in the chapter, God says, okay, uh, this isn't going to work for me to, uh, to actually travel with the people. I'll just send an angel. And, God, and, and Moses says, no, that's not going to happen. That's not nearly enough. I need you to be teaching me. I, I'm, I'm new at this. I'm really green at this. You need to be teaching me. And finally God says, okay, I'll go with you, Moses. And Moses says, oh, no, no, no. That's not nearly enough. You need to be going with us. These are your people. You need to go with us. God says, I know your name. And I love you. Okay, I'll go with all of you. And then, Moses has gotten everything he's asked for. And then he, he says, okay, now show me your glory. God says, okay but I'm not showing you my face. You don't want to see my face. That's not going to be good for you. And just to know, just to make sure you realize, I have compassion on whom I have compassion. I I show grace to who I choose to show grace to. Uh, You can't control me, Moses. I'm still God, but I'm going to grant your request. I'm going to show you my glory. So I love how this relationship is developing. And as you look at the scriptures up to this point, you have a sense that God has finally, finally found someone who is fitting into what God designed human beings to do and to be. Someone who can be a true friend of God, a true partner. Someone who can, you know, who's willing to be persuasive, to come alongside, to consult with. And... And I don't think that was supposed to happen just with Moses. That's what we're designed to be able to have with God. So this is a personal relationship in the process of our playing our role in creation and in the kingdom of God. It's meant to be personal. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people have what I would call a transactional relationship with God. I do this for you. And then you do this for me. 
If I say the right words and say the right formula, if I say in Jesus' name, then you have to do this for me, right? If I do your will, will you do my will? That's the bargain, right? It's transactional rather than um, interactional. And Moses isn't interested in just a transactional relationship. He wants an interactional relationship. As Paul says, pray all the time. Rejoice in the Lord always. Pray all the time. Because God wants an interactional relationship with you, not just a transactional relationship. So God's presence is personal. God's presence is also dependable. Um, when, when Jesus said, abide with me as I abide with you, speaking to the personal nature of the relationship he has with us, um, that same word can also be translated, remain with me as I remain with you. I'm going to remain with you. You can trust that. At the end of the Gospel of, of Matthew, we read, um, I will be with you always to the end of the age. One of the primary qualities and characteristics of God we'll see is his faithfulness. And that he proves that faithfulness again and again to his people, not only when they're at their best, but when they are at their worst, which was most of the time. And so we can depend on his presence, no matter what we're feeling, no matter what, whether or not we feel his presence, we can depend on his presence. We can bank on his presence. It's for real, and it's here, and we can depend upon it. In the sixth, God's presence is incarnational. Now, technically, theologically, theologians will say that there's only one incarnation of God, and that's Jesus. That's technically right. He became human. And that's the only way in which God has ever become human. But just as the word face can have a broader meaning, so the word incarnation can have a broader meaning. And, and, and what we want to want to realize here is that for us to experience God's presence, it has to be mediated. There has to be a medium. And that's true even of God who came to us through Jesus. It wasn't like Jesus was this human being up in the sky you know, hanging around, around around the Father who decided to make a trip to the earth. No, God had to reduce himself, became this human Jesus, and it was through that, that medium of that flesh and blood Jesus that God revealed to us so that Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we needed that medium of Jesus' flesh. And that's true all the time. And so we have the scriptures, for example, where Christ meets us. And there may be particular passages of the Bible where we sense God's presence. And so for me, the Lord's Prayer is one of those passages. I love this prayer, and I spend some time every morning slowly working through this prayer. And in the, in the working through this prayer and my understanding of it, I sense the presence of God. Even before that, when I first get up, I, I, I uh, do some stretches. And, and uh, while I'm sitting in a rocking chair doing some stretches, um, I recite the Beatitudes. 
And I imagine myself waking up with the disciples, you know, they're getting up in the morning and remembering, oh, that's right, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm living with Jesus. And in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first words that we read that he spoke to them when they were gathered together is at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. They're called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And so on and so forth. And so I, I soak in those words and imagine what they may mean. And having that sense of, okay, Jesus is here making me aware of fundamental principles for living in his kingdom. And something in me comes alive. Those beatitudes become a means for me to be in the presence of Christ. For some of us, it's nature. Where we sense the presence of God. It can be the Lord's Supper. I know there are some of you that sense the presence of God in this meal. I can see it in your eyes and your faces. Sharon and I weren't able to go to St. Gregory's Abbey in Three Rivers, Michigan this summer because of COVID. But I have a calendar in my office with black and white pictures for every month of the year reminding me of that very special place where I sense God's presence. Next to that calendar is a, an icon of the Trinity. I, you know, I don't, I don't get icons very well, but, I, but, but that one really speaks to me. And recently, while my wife and I were praying, we, we've been, we try to do it every night. In fact, these days we're doing it three times a day together. While we were praying, some things occurred to me about my own story. And later, Sharon came to me and said, I'd like to give this to you. And it's an icon that she bought for herself several months ago. Could you bring that up? Um, yeah, thank you. The bottom says, I call you my friends. And there's Jesus with his arm around. And actually, I think it's a bishop by the name of uh, Bishop Minas. But that icon has really spoken to me. You know, icons aren't meant to be realistic. The eyes are big. Everything is, is sort of stylistic. It's not meant to focus, help us focus on that, but to look beyond it. But I have that beneath this cross and this altar in my room. And, I, and it speaks to me of God's friendship, of Christ's friendship and his love. And so there are any number of things that can be a medium by which we know and experience God's presence. And I would just encourage you to note those things where you experience God's presence, those special places, those special activities, and go there. Make sure you build it into your life. Hunger for his presence and and, you know, I need those things. It's, it's, for me, it's not just a matter of, okay, I know God is real. I'm telling myself God is real. God is present. No, I need to, to be in those places and have access to those mediums of his presence that help nurture that sense of his presence in my life. This space, worship, music, beauty. These are all ways in which his presence is mediated. So God's presence is incarnational. His presence is also paradoxical. A paradox is, is where two things that don't seem to fit together, they seem like opposites, that like they couldn't be true, are both true. So God is, is sovereign. 
I mean, he, I mean, he is sovereign. Everything is within his control. And we human beings have free will. God is good. Absolutely good. And there's this reality called evil. How could there be evil in the universe if God is so good? Jesus is divine and Jesus is human. The scriptures are divine and they are obviously human at the same time. And so when we uh, get to talking about the character of God, well, let me just read those verses where God describes himself. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I say we just stop there, right? (laughs) That's a good list. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. I thought he forgave them. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, we'll explain that. By the way, it, it isn't saying that, that if I sin, my kids, my God's going to punish my kids for what I've done. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about what that means. And actually, this isn't a very good translation. I think what it is saying is that while God is compassionate and gracious and forgiving, he still has to maintain order. He's still going to allow us to experience the consequences of our actions so that those can put a check on our behavior and we can learn from our failures and mistakes. So he's a God of grace and he's a God of order. Without order, there can be no flourishing. There can be no loving one another unless there's order. I remember when Sharon and I were involved in homeless shelter work uh, one of the, well, the men, one, the man who was the house director at the men's shelter, he said, I, I want to offer a triangle, uh, these three things to our guests. Structure, honesty, and hospitality. We're going to receive them, but also to provide some structure for them so they have the possibility of flourishing here and when they leave. And so today, you know, we hear about law and order. And order is really important. And compassion and mercy and grace are also important. Human rights are important, as is responsibility. And we don't have to choose. Unfortunately, in our culture today, we have this sort of political environment, and some people seem to stoke that environment, where we have to choose. Black lives or blue lives. Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. Black lives matter. Of course, it's not saying that they matter more than other people's lives. All it's saying is they haven't mattered enough until now. That's all it's trying to be said. They haven't mattered enough until now. And there are still things in our, in how we go about our, our, our policies, how we look at each other, what's in our hearts. Black people haven't mattered enough. And we want to make sure they matter just like the rest of us. And likewise, blue lives, uh, law enforcement uh, officers, their lives matter. They certainly matter to their spouses and children when they go out the door and they don't know what they're going to encounter today. 
what risks they may um, find during the course of their day. And there's no predicting. Those lives matter. And just because some protesters become violent, we don't believe negative things about all protesters. And just because... Definitely have to replace that. I do have one to replace it. Um, just because some police officers step over a boundary in terms of violence and brutality doesn't mean that all police officers are bad people. We believe in sin, right? We believe in the reality of sin affects all of us. We don't have to choose. You know, there's a, the authors of a book called Crucial Conversations calls this the fool's choice. The fool's choice is I've got to decide I'm for one side or the other. And that's true of so many issues today. When so often there is truth on both sides. We relate to a God that requires us to embrace paradox. And living in a, in a society of diversity, we have to be able to embrace paradox if we're going to love each other. So God's presence is paradoxical. And our relationships with each other will be paradoxical. And then finally, God's presence is glorious. Moses says, show me your glory. And I would suggest that would be a great prayer for all of us this week as we go into our week. Lord, show me your glory. In Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah is in the heavenly court and there are the seraphim um, crying out, Holy, 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 the Lord our, our God Almighty, the whole earth is full of God's glory. The word glory literally means weight. You see, the earth is loaded with glory. It's just loaded with glory. You know, the poets are so helpful in this regard. The poets help us see the glory in the ordinary. I happen to be married to a poet. And she doesn't share much of her poetry with people these days, but she's a published and actually a, she's won an award for her poetry. But even when Sharon isn't writing poetry, she helps me see the world through a poet's eye. I love watching a movie with her and talking about it with her afterwards because she sees things with a poet's eye. She sees other human beings with a poet's eye. She sees the glory in the ordinary. And so we can ask God to show us the glory in the ordinary. God, show me your glory. It's everywhere. Okay. And so, um, one of the paradoxes I'm going to leave you with is that God's presence is something we can trust and rest in. And God's presence is something we seek 
is that passage which I think can be so encouraging for us in, in Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So let's trust his presence. And let's also seek his presence. And so God's presence is uh, awesome, it's powerful, it's painful, it's personal, it's dependable, it's incarnational, it's paradoxical, and it's glorious. And uh, before we pray, I'd like to show this little video, one we've seen once before, that for me brings together so much of what we've talked about. And I hope you sense and feel the glory of God in it. This is not my gospel that builds these walls between us, drawing borders that separate, raising flags of supremacy, empires of hate in the name of freedom. This is not my gospel that casts the immigrant out, pulling mothers' urgent hands from the cries of their children, expelling souls to isolation because of the color of their skin, their sexuality, the gender, the class, the nation they live in. This is not my gospel that spits on the face of God, lashing his image with words of rejection, warmongering, dominating the weak, diminishing salvation to a conditional thing, while hope lies lost and bleeding, weeping for relief. This is not my gospel that turns communities inwards, planting distrust in their hearts towards the beauty of difference, labeling neighbors as enemies and defining us by division. This is not my gospel with its eyes full of pride, when injustice is clothed in lies, when grace is caged, we face the great divide, humanity displaced from love. My gospel is love, who crossed the chasm between heaven and earth, speaking worth to all in endless benevolence. Love who sat in the dirt with the rejected, erasing their shame with the touch of acceptance, who reached for those society deserted, embracing the leper, the filthy, the hurting. Love who clutched the souls of his rivals in nail-pierced hands, holding them free from hell's vicious venom, declaring them brother, sister, cherished, forgiven. Love who tore the temple veil, divine grasping flesh, flesh clutching divine, crying, you are mine, precious mankind. Awake from your slumber and open your eyes to love. Who walked through the walls, crossing the divide with burning passion, calling for those who have lost their place, breaking tomb after tomb after tomb to reveal a world of eternal embrace. This is my gospel. This is the cry heard in the night of unrest, clutched close to heartbroken chests, crying, reach for me, 
reach past the borders, reach to the wounds that have torn us apart, plant seeds of compassion where malice has grown, throw your arms open and welcome the forsaken home, break down the walls that hate has raised, turn your eyes to the face of the shamed and realize that it is mine, it is yours, we are one reborn and remade, let the stars fall, let mercy cascade, let the heavens pour, I gave you my all, I will give it again, and again, and again, I throw down my kingship, I throw down my fame, to be with you in the rejection, to hold you in the pain, you are not the outsider, nor a child of shame, let the depths proclaim to the heights above, that you are